Well, it's a privilege to be back up here with you guys today, two weeks in a row, and I hope you feel the same way. <laughs> if, you were, if you were here last week or even when I preached uh, before in January, you heard um, a little snippet of, of my story, and, and I'll regurgitate it very quickly for the sake of where we're going to go today. Um, but again, I grew up in the Boston area. I grew up and was raised Roman Catholic. Again, for us, that meant that we went to church twice a year. We went on Christmas and we went on Easter. Um, and when I got into uh, undergrad, I went to St. Anselm College, not that far from here. When I got into undergrad, even though I had been raised Roman Catholic and been to St. Mary's this and St. Mary's that, um, I, I really turned my back on any kind of organized religion and, and really any kind of faith as I would have defined it. And the crescendo of that experience, the, the sort of the peak of that experience of me turning my back on, um, on Catholicism, on religion, on God, was that roughly 10 years ago, for about two years, I spent that time, two years, trying to disprove the very existence of God. So when I see videos like that, and I hear the, the sentiment of what people are saying, the questions they're asking, the statements they're making, I'm telling you, I said every single, I said all of that times 10. Um, and so it really, really resonated with me and, and, and where I was. Um, and actually, it's, it's going to speak directly to what I'm going to talk about today. But in that two years of research, I, I resolved to go where the evidence would lead me. Does that make sense? There's a way in which you can go about doing research. You can have an end goal in mind. I want this thing to be read and you can go, f the color red, and you can go find everything that points to that thing being the color red. Or you can say, I want to know what color that thing is, and you can end up wherever the evidence leads you. Okay, there's two ways of doing things. So I resolved to just go where the evidence was going to lead me, and it led me straight to God. The, my, the question I had was, okay, which God is it? Okay, do the Buddhists have it right? Do they, have the Jews had it right all along? Which religion had it right if any of them did it all? And as part of my research, I looked into the different leaders slash founders, however you want to call it, of each religion, of each movement, of each worldview. And I noticed something very interesting. Neither Muhammad in Islam, Buddha for Buddhism, even Abraham for Judaism, or even the Vedas in Hinduism are necessary for their religions. In other words, if you take Muhammad out of Islam you still have Islam. If you take Abraham out of Judaism, it could have just as easily had been Timmy. I don't know. <laughs> Pick a name, right? Someone else. If you take Buddha out of Buddhism, the teachings remain. Those religions are not predicated on the founder. But if you take Christ out of Christianity, you have nothing. You cannot remove Christ out of Christianity because Christianity is not about teachings. It's not about rules. It's not about regulations. It's not about some mystical experience. It's about a relationship with a person. And therefore, you cannot remove Christ from Christianity. And so the question that I had to ask and answer is, who is Christ? And if you've heard the last two times I've preached... That's the question we've asked, and that's the question we've answered through two different pieces of, of New Testament scripture. And dur during my research in that two-year period, the evidence for the resurrection of Christ was so overwhelming that I could no longer persist in my unbelief. Now, the theologically correct way of saying it, 
is that God opened my eyes and my heart. He revealed his truth to me. Because I don't want to make the mistake of positing that Christianity is some intellectual ascent. Because it's not. You do not climb up a ladder of knowledge or hike up a mountain of data. And when you've done enough work and you've done enough research and you've poured over all the evidence, you somehow arrive at Christ. Does that make sense? It's not an intellectual ascent. However, it's also not some blind leap of faith. In fact... The word faith is referenced 501 times in the New Testament alone. In the Greek, in the original language, there are only, other three, there are only three other words that are referenced more. God, Jesus, and Lord. Which makes sense, because faith always has to have an object. If I came up to you and said, man, I have faith, the next question out of your mouth would be, in what? <laughs> right? Not, there's no such thing as just faith. It's faith in what? Well, Christianity is not a faith in what. It's a faith in who. And the New Testament authors had two words they could have used for faith. Nomizo and pistis. Nomizo means to believe something because of a law or custom. In other words, you believe in something not because of evidence, but you believe in something because that's what you've always done. Of the 501 times the word faith is used in the New Testament, not once did they use nomizo. Every single time they use the word pistis, which translates to believe in something, to be persuaded to believe something because of the evidence for it. No blind leap in the dark, not believing in something because your grandparents believed in it. Evidence. Examine the evidence and discover its truth. Now, as a Christian, I have faith that the Bible is the Word of God. Question, does that make the Bible the Word of God? No. If I tell you that I believe I can break the law of gravity and fly, and I climb up to the roof of the building and I jump off, I will break something. <laughs> but it will not be the law of gravity. The Bible isn't true because I believe it to be true. I believe it to be true because I've examined the evidence and discovered, not determined, discovered its truth. But believing the Bible, believing the entire Bible, not just the pieces I like and ignoring the pieces I don't like, but believing the whole thing was not always the case. In fact, that was one of the major obstacles for me in that two-year period of my research. And what, so again, when I hear people on video, when I talk to people in the normal course of a day, and they say, how can you believe in the Bible? I had all of the reasons slash excuses that they've had, and maybe even some of you have today. It's written by a bunch of men, as if books are written by cats. It contradicts, wrong. It's out of date, wrong. It's the telephone game. That sound familiar? Incorrect. Constantine arbitrarily decided which books to include and which books to exclude. Eh, wrong again. So what I want to do today is something different than what we've done the last two times. What I want to do today is not just tell you that the Bible is true and give you a bunch of research behind it. What I want to do is I want to show you from the Bible why I believe it to be true. And this is crucial for Christians to know not just what we believe, 
but why we believe it. Now, I know that there are many believers here today, but do not check out because depending on your proficiency with Scripture, what we go through today may actually change the way you read the Bible like it did for me. So let's dig in. If you had to discern the testimonies of eyewitnesses if they were true, how would you do it? If you had to discern if the testimonies of eyewitnesses to an event were true, how would you do it? Now, it's an odd answer to try to articulate, but every one of us does it intuitively without, almost, without any effort whatsoever. And there are five tests to determine if testimonies are true. The first one is logical consistency. The second one is empirical adequacy. And the third one is existential relevance. Really annoyingly fancy ways of saying what every one of us do all the time without even thinking about it. Number one, logical consistency. Does the story even make sense? Is it rational? Number two, empirical adequacy. Picks or it didn't happen. Is there any proof to the story that you're talking about? Number three, existential relevance. Does it even apply to the world that we live in today? Okay, three easy tests. The next two are what we're going to talk about today. Correspondence and coherence. And let me just give you an, an, an example of what I mean by this. Let's say four or five of you leave service today and you walk outside. And the street that borders the parking lot, all of a sudden as you guys are walking out looking at your cars in that street, bang, there's a car accident. And the two people get out of their cars. You Four of you have witnessed this. The two people get out of their cars and shockingly, they disagree on who caused the accident. You were going too fast, you were in my lane, you didn't have your signal on. When the police arrive, they will, they, will talk, they will speak with you four as eyewitnesses of an event. And two things they will be looking to see is if your stories correspond with one another and if they cohere with one another. If, one of, if three of you say the exact same thing and the fourth one says, yeah, this guy was in a speedboat and the other guy was on a helicopter and they just, they'd be like, what, like, Okay, we just need you three, right? You clearly weren't around, right? Because that does not correspond or cohere with the other three stories or what the police are looking at in front of their face. Back to the Bible. The Bible is not one book. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written by more than 40 authors and eyewitnesses. If these books do not correspond and cohere with one another, we as Christians have a massive problem. So what I'm going to do today is we're going to look at three stories in the Bible. And I want to show you how they correspond and cohere. So, so hang in with me. And just about the time, if you haven't already questioned why you're here at church today, we're going to tie it all together and your brains are going to like explode out of your head because you're going to see the thread that carries throughout the entire scripture. And the first story that I want to look at is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Show of hands if you know of this story even generally, Abraham and Isaac. Perfect. It's a well-known story, but I want to set it up really quickly. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. It begins with the creation of the universe, followed by the creation of man, followed by the fall of man. That is Genesis chapter 1, 2, and half of 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of man, when sin entered the world, God delivered judgment on Satan, the woman, and the man in that order. And to Satan, he made a promise 
that through the woman, God would deliver the one that would crush the head of the serpent. And the entire rest of the story, this is Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The entire rest of the Bible is the story of God seeking out, rescuing, and redeeming his creation. That's the meta-narrative of the Bible. That's the big picture. Abraham comes to us in Genesis chapter 11, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham considered the founder of the Jewish nation, right? Before he was the founder of the Jewish nation, he was a pagan, worshiping pagan gods, living a pagan lifestyle, just like everybody else. Now, why start with Abraham? Well, I'm going to say something and just ask that you remember it until the end. As you look at a timeline from your left to right, Abraham is the great-grandson times eight of Noah. Noah of Noah in the flood. What do I mean by that? Abraham is the great, 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 great grandson of Noah. Noah is the great times eight grandson of Adam. So from Adam, the first person created to Abraham, you've got 16 generations. Make sense? File that back in your mind. God, in his infinite wisdom and providence, looks down on Abraham, not for anything that Abraham was doing, but all because of God, and says, I am going to make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And remember, God takes Abraham outside and says, look up at the stars in the sky. Number them if you can. So shall your offspring be. Now, there was a problem Abraham had. Does anybody know what it is? He had no kids. Now, in that culture, kids were considered a blessing. <gasps> Abraham, we know, had a ton of wealth. We know that. What he didn't have were any children, and so his wealth, his power, his influence, his legacy stopped with him. And so for God to look down and say, I am going to make of you a great nation is so God, right? Because not only is Abraham at this time 75 years old and his wife is equally as old, but they, can't have, they don't have any kids because they can't have any kids. Sarah is barren. She cannot have children. But scripture says that Abraham believed God's promise and God counted it to him as righteousness, as right standing before God. And I don't want to get too far into the story, but if you know the story at all, Abraham and Sarah, depending on your rendering of the scripture, get a little bit tired of waiting for God to deliver the son that he promised. And so they kind of arrange something separately, which produces Ishmael. And if you want to know one of the big disagreements between Islam and Christianity, that's it right there. God provides for Hagar and Ishmael. They're over here. Consider it back to Abraham and Sarah. Finally, when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 99 years old, God fulfills his promise and gives them a son named Isaac. And then Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. 
And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his younger son, stay here with the donkey. Said to his younger men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Can you, can you hear the belief in God's promise? I and the boy will go worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took, it in, he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now this is an amazing story of God giving Abraham the same exact faith that he gives to you and me and then testing that faith so that Abraham would have to rely 100% on God. And that's what he did. He relied on God providing and God showed up on the mountain and saved Isaac. Now hold those details in your mind for a few more minutes. Exodus chapter 25 is where we're going to be next. Again, these are going to seem like three very different stories, and then we're going to smush them all together at the end. This is 450 years after Abraham and Isaac. This is when God led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt through the Red Sea. Charlton Heston, who's with me on that? Yeah? Okay, awesome. I don't feel so old anymore. Now, what's hysterical is the trek from Egypt to the promised land should have taken 11 days. How long did it take? 40 years, right? And it's that saying of like, it took God one day to get Israel out of Egypt. It took him 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. The the pagan worshiping, the idolatry, all of that was so ingrained in God's people that he led them through the wilderness to get that out of them. And as he led them through the wilderness, their two leaders were Moses, of course, and Aaron, his older brother. And God began to tell them in the wilderness how the Israelites were to live with one another, how they were to set up their society, how they were to worship God himself. And in Exodus 25, Moses records God's instructions for the building of the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm going to go through this rather quickly, then slam on the brakes in a couple spots. God says, they, the Israelites, shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half is its length, cubit and a half its breadth, cubit and a half its height. Overlay it with pure gold, inside and out, overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. Cast four rings of silver for gold for it. Put them on four feet, two rings on one side of it, two rings on the other side of it. Make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. 
put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark and carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the ring of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. It's the Ten Commandments. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and you shall make two angels of God. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one angel on one end and one angel on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the angels on its two ends. The angels shall spread their wings out above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the angels be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give to you. There I will meet with you. There I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two angels that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now, the Israelites had what they called a high priest. Okay? This was the leader of the Israelites. And when Solomon finally built, his te- built the temple to the Lord, he built it as a big square with a smaller square and a smaller square and a smaller square and then a really small square in the middle. And the smallest square in the middle was called the Holy of Holies. And as you move from the outside square to the inside square, it got more exclusive in terms of who could enter until there was only one person that could enter the Holy of Holies. And inside of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And only the high priest could go behind the curtain, the veil, to the Holy of Holies, to the mercy seat. And once a year, on a day that's now known as Yom Kippur in Hebrew, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go behind the veil, sacrifice an animal, and sprinkle its blood on the mercy seat as atonement, as payment for the sins of Israel. Hold that in your mind for another minute. We're almost done. Fast forward 600 years. Let's take a, take a look at the story of David and Goliath. Show of hands, who's heard of the story of David and Goliath? Right? Everybody's heard of this story. At this time, Saul's the king of Israel, but prior to a battle with the Philistines, Saul begins to trust in himself more than the providence of God. So God rejects Saul and tells the prophet Samuel, who writes First and Second Samuel, where we find this story, tells the prophet Samuel, go find Jesse from Bethlehem, because from Jesse, I have provided a king for my people. So Samuel goes out, does what the Lord tells him, finds David. David comes before Saul, and we're going to jump right into the battle scene. 1 Samuel 17, verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. The picture you should have in your mind is like when you were younger and you tried to put your dad's dress shirt on or something. That's this picture. Like the armor doesn't fit. It's clunky. David's a shepherd. Like he's not used to armor. He's not a warrior, so to speak. 
So then David says to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David takes them off. He took a staff in his hand, chooses five small stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand as he approached the Philistine. That's Goliath. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistines looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Interesting details. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Now remember, Goliath is massive. And here's David, ruddy and handsome in appearance, right? Certainly not a warrior. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all his assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear, for the battle is whose? The Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put in his hand his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. Now, this is the way battle was done in those days. There's nothing new about these two meeting. Instead of having the armies fight each other and slaughter one another, they would send their best representative warrior. Armies arrayed up, warriors down in the valley, and whoever won between those two warriors won the victory for their side. And the other army became their slaves. Those were the rules of the game. So David goes down into the valley as a substitute for the nation of Israel and fights Goliath on behalf of God's people. And just like God showed up on the mountain and saved Isaac, he shows up in the valley and saves David and wins the day. Now, what is the reason for going through these three stories about Abraham, Isaac, the mercy seat, and David? How do these correspond and cohere with one another? Remember, Adam is Noah's great-grandfather times eight. Noah is Abraham's great-grandfather times eight. Isaac, Abraham's son, is the great-grandfather of King David times 11. And King David is the great-grandfather of King Jesus times 30, which means that God, in his love, in his grace, in his providence, created Adam, saved Adam when he sinned against God, to eventually produce Noah, save Noah from the flood, to eventually select and elect and save Abraham, to produce Isaac, whom he saved, to eventually produce David, whom he saved from a Goliath to eventually produce Jesus to save you. 
and me. And almost 2,000 years ago, God did just that when he led his son, his only son, into town on a donkey and up a mountain. And just like Isaac, Jesus was carrying the wood, the wood of the cross. But there was no ram with its horns caught in the thickets, just a lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus wearing a crown of thorns. And on that day, God saved because the son was killed. And on the cross, Jesus was plunged into the valley of death. And, that, and it is that where Jesus, just like David, stood in our place as a substitute for us, for God's people, and slayed the giant for us. He slayed the giant of sin and death so that you and I would no longer be slaves. And on that day, God saved not with a slingshot, but with his son. And his victory is our victory. But we know that the story doesn't end there. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. And this is the account from the Gospel of John of the resurrection, more than 1,300 years after Moses and Aaron built the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Here it is. But Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Just like the mercy seat was designed. The words that we translate mercy seat in the Greek are translated from the word hilasterion. That's a fancy way of saying propitiation, which is a fancy way of saying atonement. Jesus Christ was the payment, was the atonement that every single other sacrifice pointed to. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the mercy seat of Christ is where God meets us now, where a just judge becomes a forgiving father through a sacrificed son. If you're a believer, I hope you see Scripture now in a totally new way. I hope you see the scarlet thread of Christ that weaves through the entire scripture. And I hope that you've fallen in love all over again with it. 
If you've not yet surrendered your life to Christ, do you see, are you starting to understand that all of history bends its knee to God? There's not one rogue or maverick molecule in this universe that God orchestrated time in such a way that not only did he send his son to die for you, but he tracked you down and sent you here today. Not for information, but transformation. And salvation is available today the way it's always been available. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus is the promise of Genesis chapter 3. He is the one who was delivered and crushed the head of the serpent. And all of scripture bears witness to him. The Bible is 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents in three languages over 2,500 years and every single verse points to one person, the person of Jesus Christ. It is the living, breathing word of God and my prayer is you bet your life on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we see throughout, throughout history your work I pray that we see that the world in which we live in today, the broken world filled with broken people and our broken lives is not the way that you designed it. Father, I pray that we see that you were not happy, you were not satisfied to simply leave us in our sin and leave us in this broken world, which is what we deserve. But Father, you stepped into this world. You sent your son into this world, not to condemn this world, but that the whole world might be saved through him. Father, I pray that you do that work now, here, today, among your people. Father, your word has gone out, the good news of Jesus Christ, who was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth was laid. Father, I pray that the people receive this word, that Christians in the room fall in love with Scripture and they see your Son in every single verse, around every single corner, under every single rock. Father, I pray for people that have not yet committed their lives to Christ, that they see the love with which you've had, that you love this world so much and in such a way that you did send Christ for them, not for somebody else, for them. Father, make this message personal today. Make this, me- this gospel message personal for each one of us. Father, bless your word today. Make our hearts no longer idle factories, Father. Make them altars to you. Would everything that we think, say, and do be according to your will, all to the expansion of your kingdom, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to the glory of your Son, Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen.